to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here at City on a Hill. Really glad that you're here with us today uh, as we worship the Lord together. Um, if you are a guest, I mentioned this at the beginning of the service. If you hadn't gotten a chance to pull out that blue connection card, uh, this is a great way for us to get to know you. Just fill this out. It gives us a couple of ways to get in contact with you, share more about the church. And you just take this card back to the table at the back and just exchange it for a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery. Um, and so we will give that to you. And then we'll also send you an email this week uh, with a list of charities. And in the email, you get to choose from that and just reply to that. Let us know which one and we'll make a donation for you as a thank you for you being here this morning. Uh, our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. Gospel means good news. Uh, good news starts with bad news. We were once separated from God because of our sin. And in fact, next week, we're going to get into all of that next week. So it's a very joyful topic next week, uh, getting into all of that, uh, of what it means to be separated from God because of sin. But the good news is that God sent his son, Jesus, to die in our place, to live a life we couldn't live, to die a death we deserve, and then to raise again to new life so that we could find life in him. And so if you've not entered into that relationship with Jesus yet, come find me after the service. I'll be standing at the back. I'd love to share with you about how to enter into that relationship with him. Secondly, community. God created us for relationship. None of us were meant to be alone, uh, as we're going to talk about here in a couple of minutes. And uh, because of that, God gave us friendships and relationships, and he gave us the church to help people come from different walks of life and backgrounds to help us flourish and grow into the people that God wants us to be. And lastly, mission, that God gave us a mission to make him known in the world. So we share the good news and tell others of what Christ has done for us, but we also uh, live lives shaped by that. So we love and serve our neighbors because of what Jesus has done for us. A few announcements before we get into the text today. Um, coming uh, today is actually the deadline for our City on a Hill retreat. So uh, you, if you may have seen this the last couple of weeks, we have a retreat coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, just October th- uh, 21st through the 23rd. And we're going to get away to New Hampshire with our other City on a Hill congregations in Brighton, Brookline, and Somerville. And this is one of my favorite things we do each year. And in fact, lots of people go on this retreat um, and they find friendships. They find people and they deepen friendships when we get away together. And so if you've not signed up for that today, is the last day to sign up, so be sure to do so. Um, the, uh, you can go to coahforesthills.org slash events and sign up there, uh, and we can get you signed up for that. Uh, c- coming up next Sunday, we're having baptisms. I'm really excited. We have a couple of baptisms coming up, and we're going to celebrate that as well as have a picnic at Johnson Park. It's right by the Green Street stop, so make plans to, to come. You can bring your lunch with you, or there's a couple of places around Johnson Park you can pick up lunch and join us there. We're going to celebrate. And then coming up on October 14th, we're having our next membership class. And so our membership class is an opportunity for you to learn more about City on a Hill, discover who we are. And um, as you do that, it doesn't mean you have to become a member. It's just the first step in the process. And it's a great way to just learn more about how we exist. So if you've not signed up for that yet, please do so. Uh, Covenant membership matters because uh, what we're saying is we're saying we believe in 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 what God's doing here, but also these are our people. We believe in in the community that God's building. So if you want to take that next step, be sure to sign up for that class coming up. Now, as people, uh, we were created to imitate. 
Uh, we imitate by nature. If you've ever seen children, uh, children as early as a couple of uh, months old will begin to wash their parents' face and mimic the look on a parent's face. Um, they'll, they'll look for cues of when to smile. And study after study after study have shown that children learn these cues from their parents. Um, they learn what, it, what, you know, what, what to laugh at, what to frown at. They learn uh, when, when, when stress, when you should be stressed, when you shouldn't be stressed. Um, they learn their mannerisms from their parents. They learn vocal inflection and accents from their parents. I had a friend who lived in London, and uh, he, is, he is, was, is from the South and moved to London, and after about a year, I noticed that his daughter had picked up a British accent because uh, she was spending all this time with people at school and, and never lost it. She actually still has a British accent because of that time there. We imitate by nature. And the reason we do this is the, the desire to imitate is built into us. Uh, we imitate those that we look to. We imitate our parents. We imitate our friends. And we imitate God because we were created in his image. We've been, been looking at this over the last couple of weeks of what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are to reflect God in the world, we represent him, and that our character and the way that we act and the way that we function, it mirrors who God is. And we looked at in the first week of this at the idea of we're made with, it with dignity, where there's a certain inherent dignity and value and worth that you and I have, that every person on the planet has, regardless of the choices you've made, regardless of how smart you are, regardless of your accomplishments. None of that gives you the, the inherent value that God gives you because he created you in his image. And because of this, there are all sorts of implications for how we live. There's all sorts of implications for um, our ethics and the way we treat people. Think of life and death. And last week, we looked at how there's some moral implications to this, even in the way that we work. It rest and work are gifts that God has given us to show the, him, show the world uh, to him, or show the world, show, I think you know where I'm going there, show the world to Yes, you get where I'm going. Just going to stop there. Um, uh, we, we work and rest as a pattern of, of, of God's grace made, being made in his image. Uh, Genesis 2, 18 through 25 is another application of what it means to be made in the image of God. And it's all about relationships. We are relational people because God is a relational God. And particularly, we see this in marriage. Now, this passage isn't just about marriage. It actually applies to all sorts of relationships. And so you might be wondering, how does a passage about marriage apply to you? And we have many people in our congregation who are single. Um, we believe that there's value to singleness. Whether you're married or single, we believe both of these, uh, these stages of life are good. Um, some people who are single now may get married later. Those who are married now may be single again. Uh, but we, and we see both of these, these aspects show the gospel. It's been said that marriage shows the beauty of the gospel while singleness shows the sufficiency of the gospel. And so what does and the application of this passage of marriage, what does it have for each of us, even if you're not married? Well, we see Adam and Eve are a paradigm for every type of relationship. They're a model or example for all types of relationships. And when you're trying to learn anything, and we're, tr we're trying to learn what it means to be relational beings, you have to look at something as a standard. And Adam, Eve, Adam and Eve stand as that standard. I am a massive baseball fan. I love baseball. I'll talk about baseball. I can make lots of baseball examples. So just, just, just be ready for those. And here's another one this morning, because when I was growing up, uh, I was, wanted to learn how to hit a baseball. And uh, my favorite baseball player growing up was Ken Griffey Jr. And if you've ever seen Ken Griffey Jr. swing a baseball bat, it is beauty. It is poetry in motion. It is the way that a baseball bat is supposed to be swung. 
And so I would watch King Griffey Jr. as I, as I was also a left-hander and watch him effortlessly hit the ball over the fence. I would watch this over and over and over again as the model or the picture or the paradigm of what it means to swing a baseball bat. In the same way, Adam and Eve are a pattern for all relationships. They're a pattern for marriage, but not just marriage, every relationship, because if we're honest, we need some help here. We need some help relationally because we don't know what it looks like to love each other well. Maybe you come from a broken family or a divorced home. Maybe you're trying to be a parent, but you didn't have the best example as a parent for yourself. Maybe you want to know what it means to have friends. Sin isolates us and drives us away from one another, so we need to fix our eyes on what a perfect relationship looks like to inform us what it means to be relational people. And so Adam and Eve are a paradigm for us relationally. And the first idea we see is that Adam and Eve are the paradigm for our need to connect. You and I were created to connect with other people. And the writer of Genesis gets at this in verse 18 when he quotes God who says, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now, when you read those words, that should stop you in your tracks. It is not good that man should be alone because this is the first time that God has uttered anything like this in the creation story. It's the first time he's given what's called a malediction, declaring something as bad. And so all throughout the creation story is God created the lights in the heavens, as he created the seas, as he created the mountains and vegetation and animals and people. He described them as good, or as he created people, as very good. Now, goodness in the Bible has this sense of working the way that it's supposed to. So I remember being 16 years old, and I was looking at the newspaper trying to find a car to buy. And when you have like zero money, your options are very limited. So you're trying to find a good car. And it always would always say something like, you know, cold air runs smooth. And, and for a car to be a good car, it means it needs to function well. It needs to do all the things that a car is supposed to do. If you're drinking coffee and you say, mm, that's good, that means that coffee tastes the way it's supposed to taste, which is black, the way that God intended it. It tastes it has a goodness in its essence that it works the way it's supposed to, but also that there's a flavor to it that is right and good. And we see here in the design that God made us with, we were designed in a way that we shouldn't be alone. We're designed for relationship with other people. And this pronouncement that being alone is not good comes before sin enters the world. So in other words, our isolation is not, is, is not the product of sin. Now, sin can isolate us by saying that we were created for a relationship before sin ever entered the world. This means that perfection for us is not radical independence where we just work ourselves to death and we never worry about the relationships in our life. It doesn't mean that you can find the right job or the right career or the right school to fulfill you. It actually means that you need relationships because you were designed for relationships. You were designed to need other people and to be needed by other people. And so you can't fully live out the purpose that God has given you without relationships in your life. Now, notice what I didn't say. I didn't say that you cannot fully be human without being married. I didn't say you can't fully live out your purpose without being married, but all of us need relationships. We need relationships to thrive. Now, the flip side of this is that there's no relationship that can save you. Because isolation is not a product, it's, it's not simply sinful, it's, it's the fact that God created us to need other people. It, it, no, there's no relationship that can save you. There's never going to be an available enough friend. There, there's never going to be a good enough spouse. 
you're never going to have a good enough parent or be a good enough child. Or, you're never going to have that. Now, now, sin does create isolation and only makes this problem of loneliness worse, but human relationships are a gift from God to help us grow and flourish and push the world forward. We even see in the creation story that one reason that God brought man and woman together was to be fruitful and multiply. That was the idea of having children. They wanted to create more children who would go out into the world and who would glorify God. You see this in the workplace, that as God brings a team of people together and they work using their different gifts and abilities and backgrounds and temperaments, we can create some pretty amazing things. We live in a city where we love innovation. We love creating all sorts of new stuff. This city was the, the, the coronavirus vaccines. A lot of that work was done here only in a very short period of time. That is a diverse group of people coming together, bringing their expertise to the table to help us flourish. We need friends because they help us laugh and they bear our sorrows. And so God created Eve for Adam because he needed someone else to fully enjoy the world with. He was alone and it wasn't good. And we know this experience of loneliness. We know it's not the way that we're supposed to experience life. And sometimes we experience loneliness and we're alone because we move to a new place. Some of you may be new to Boston and, and you're coming here and you're leaving friends and coworkers and family and you're like, man, I'm just lonely. I miss, I miss my friends. I miss people that I shared life with. I miss a season of life where I felt like I just had a lot of close people. You moved for a new school. You moved into a new neighborhood. Sometimes we lose a relationship. Maybe you're the one who stayed in Boston and you had your friends move away. We lose relationships through divorce or death or distance or simply just relational fallout. But sometimes our isolation is self-imposed. We're, we're afraid of being rejected by other people. We're afraid of the shame that comes if somebody really knows our story and knows all the little dark corners and recesses of our heart. And so what we do from that is we self-isolate. We say, they, you know, they're never going to love me. They're never going to accept me. They're never going to see me as I am. And what we do is we just create more distance. And what's that create? It creates more loneliness. So we have to fight our isolation and press towards being in a relationship. So a few ways that we do this is we press in. We fight isolation by pressing in. Our posture needs to be one of leaning forward. We need to be the, not leaning back, not waiting for people to come to us, but leaning forward, being the initiator. When it comes to relationships, sometimes we wait for other people to invite. We wait for other people to ask us to coffee, for other people to invite us into their home. What would change if we were to take a posture relationally where we did the asking, where we did the inviting? We asked people to come into our lives. Secondly, we open up. You know, we need to have an open posture, an open stance with people that we're willing to be known. Now, we talk about this in our community groups all the time, which are groups of, of six to ten people who meet together for Bible study and, and to, to encourage one another. If you're not a part of a community group, just mark that yellow card. We'll help you get connected to one. Uh, but we talk about appropriate vulnerability, which means that there are, you know, there, there's certain things you probably shouldn't share the first time you meet with somebody. Um, you know, be, you know be, be open, but also appropriate vulnerability means that if you're an undersharer, you probably need to share a little more than you're comfortable with. If you're an oversharer, just admit it and just you know, hold, that, hold it in a little bit. But, but oh, be willing to open up. Thirdly is be willing to give out. We, we often think of, of, of relationships as reciprocal. I'm going to wait for somebody else to do something for me before I do something for them. But what's the gospel is that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
we're going to model that in our relationships. We have to be willing to give out. We have to be willing to serve and reach out to other people first. And I think the most important way that we can fight isolation, particularly in a city like Boston, is the church. The church is the place that we can live out all of these relationships and friendships as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can work these things out together. That's one reason we should press in and lean in on the church. So Adam and Eve show us that we, we were not meant to be alone, but secondly, they're a paradigm for how we relate to each other. So we know the need, but then how, once we get into these relationships, do we relate to each other? So I want to dig in on, on marriage for just a minute to help us see how this works in other relationships. We see here that God decides to create woman as, as a way to address man's loneliness. He creates Eve to, to help Adam, and he uses this beautiful phrase, and he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him. Now, don't get hung up on that word helper. I know that, that translation for some might feel like, you know, as something lesser than, but it's not a demeaning word. It's actually a very beautiful word. The word helper there is the word easer, and the word easer is a military phrase meaning to bring help when someone needs strength. The term is often actually used of God for saving Israel. Psalm 33 verse 20 says, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help or easer and our shield. It's not describing someone who's subordinate. It's describing an indispensable partner. Someone who who does what Adam cannot do. Someone who brings strength where Adam is lacking. And so she is the completion within this marriage relationship where you have two equal but very different people. You have two very equal but very different people. People who are fully made in the image of God, but yet they're different. And they're a little bit like puzzle pieces. God doesn't create a carbon copy of Adam. He creates someone who is different but equal to Adam. And so if you take puzzle pieces and you're trying to put two puzzle pieces together, you can't take two exact puzzle pieces and match them together. It takes two similar but yet different puzzle pieces to bring the the entire picture into focus. And when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about gender stereotypes here. I'm not talking about there's certain things husbands should do, certain things wives should do. But a husband and a wife bringing different strengths to the table, filling in the gaps and helping them become who they are meant to be within this marriage. And what happens is they draw out what you don't see. You know, I, I am not a typically very sensitive or gentle person. That is not a very natural thing for me. Uh, but, but being married to someone who is and having four daughters has drawn that out of me in spades. And so I cry at like Disney movies. I do all kinds of stuff like that that is not natural to me. And that relationship has helped that come to bear. We see that God creates a helper fit for him. The word fit for him is the word suitable. Someone that is his equal. And we see in verses 19 and 20 that every beast and every bird of the field, they're brought before Adam and he names them. And we see at the end of verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. None were fit for him to be his equal. Now, some, I'm sure, made great companions. I'm sure about to make all the dog people mad. But a dog isn't a replacement for a person. You can be a companion with a dog, but, but they can't give you human interaction. It's one-sided. They, they can't exchange ideas. You can't have a peer-to-peer relationship. And so they have a function, but you're meant to have people in your life who are your equal, who press you and push you. In the story of Adam and Eve, we see that God puts Adam to sleep. 
It wasn't Adam discovering this partner among many options, but God gives Eve to Adam as an act of grace that God is working while he's resting. And we see in verse 21 that he does so by taking one of his ribs, closing up the place with his flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. She was a part of him, but also her own. She was similar, but yet different. And I think one thing that's beautiful about the creation story of women in the Bible is it stands out completely different from any other creation story of women in the Mesopotamian world. All the other stories of women being created, women were subjected, they were oppressed, they were seen as lower than men. But the Hebrew ethic for women actually meant to, was meant to value them and protect them and honor them. And if you read a lot of the laws, the social laws in the Old Testament, they were actually meant to protect women in a world that often oppressed them. And so there's something beautiful about and unique about the story of God creating women, fully made in the image of God, but yet uniquely feminine in a way that can't be reduced to appearance. There's something innately feminine, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, that everything they would do would be feminine because they're women. In the same, thing, in the same way that everything men do is masculine simply because you're a man. And so we see that God takes her from the, the rib from the side, not from the head so that she's above man, not from the feet so that she's below man. And so we see marriage as this man and a woman equal in dignity yet beautifully different. Different biologically and sexually, different emotionally, different in how we see the world, but yet needing each other. And when we think about this, this has guidance for all relationships. You need friends. You need people who are different than you. You need parents and, you, and, and your children. You need coworkers who are, who are different than you. We like the Enneagram around here. We don't get weird about it, but we like it. And, and it helps us think through a little. It's a personality test, and it just helps you think through your personality and, and, and what your strengths are and where you struggle. I'm an Enneagram 3, uh, which means I work really hard, and I'm very focused, and I like tasks. I like goals. Um, I need people in my life who don't. Um, I, I need Matt Waldrop, who's an Enneagram 2, which his first question is always, how can I help you? He's very loving and caring. I need Enneagram 7s who are just fun people to get me out of doing work. We need people different from us. And there's a reason that in the New Testament, Paul talks about the church as a body. We don't need a body full of toes or fingers or elbows. We need a fully functioning body of people doing different things with different personalities, with different giftings to help us more fully see the picture. We can acknowledge that we're different and how that's good and there's beauty in this diversity. The third way we see Adam and Eve as a paradigm is they're a paradigm for love. I want you to look at verse 23. Adam, he just spits some like straight Luther Vandross lyrics here. He says, this is at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Isn't it beautiful that the first words recorded of any person speaking is a love poem? That's pretty incredible. He's saying, you're a part of me. I want what's best for you. I want, I want, to, I want to help you glorify God. We're, we're in this together. And notice that there's not a single sense of possessiveness from Adam. He doesn't say, you're mine. He doesn't say, finally, here's someone who's going to fulfill all of my needs and all of my desires and do all the things that I ever wanted them to do. Here, it, the expectation wasn't that she was just going to come and do all the work. 
But he says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, someone I'm going to give myself to. And in verse 24, we see how Adam does this when he says he leaves and holds fast. Now that word hold fast, there's an old, old translation of that would be the word cleave. So you'd often hear people say leave and cleave, that Adam would leave what was comfortable He'd leave his own comfort, his own desires, his his own priorities, and he would do so in such self-giving love, he would follow after her and cling to his wife. He honors her, and this is really what a healthy marriage should look like, is honors her as an equal, but yet does so in a way that's not self-seeking, but self-giving. And if you enter into a marriage or any relationship without that idea that you're going in with an equal, that you're giving yourself to, If you don't enter with that, you'll always be dissatisfied. You'll you'll crush the other person. Tim Keller says, nobody can bear the weight of the expectations and the hopes of ultimate joy. It's not just marriage. But if you put that weight on a friend, you'll never have a good enough friend. If you put that weight on a friend, you'll crush them with your expectations. If you put that weight on a boss, and here's just a little bit of psychology, we often reflect our relationship with our parents onto our bosses, expecting them to be the the parent we never had. If you do that, you will absolutely be dissatisfied with your boss. Always be looking for a new job. If you put all your hopes in having a child, you'll crush them. If you expect your parents to be perfect and never make a mistake, you're always going to be dissatisfied. It will never be enough. But you can apply this idea of being self-giving to any relationship. You want to be a good coworker? Honor people, dignify them, serve them, go buy coffee. You want to be a good friend? Seek the other person's good and need first before you seek your own. Be self-giving, not self-serving. But what we tend to do relationally when we put these really high expectations on other people is we tend to have very low expectations for ourselves. We tend to expect a lot out of other people to serve us and to seek us, but yet we're honestly not doing the same thing. But what the Bible shows us is that when we give ourselves away, when we lose our life, we find it. And when you give yourself away in love to another person, you find life. Derek Kidner says that man or people will not live until he loves giving himself away to another on his own level. What did Jesus say? You have to lose your life to find it. The fourth way we see this is Adam and Eve are the paradigm for sex and commitment. Now, one of the most more controversial elements of the Bible is this. Why does God care who I sleep with? Why does he care? There's actually a fantastic podcast from Rebecca McLaughlin on this. It's called the Confronting Christianity Podcast. And one of her questions in that podcast, and she talks with Rachel Gilson, who's also uh, studying these things, uh, about why does God care about these things? And we're actually going to share that that podcast this week uh, as a resource. But Remember that everything God lays out in creation is for our good. It's for our flourishing. Anything that he patterns for us in the Bible is meant to help us, meant to increase our joy, but it's also meant to spread his glory. And so God set a pattern in creation to show us something about sex and to show us how it ties to commitment. Now, notice I didn't tie sex and love together because sex is not the fullest expression of love. In other words, it doesn't mean that you're not human if you don't have it. It's a symbol. It's a sign of a deeper commitment. We see this at the end of verse 24 where it says, and they shall become one flesh. It's covenant renewal. 
And so Genesis 2 portrays the first wedding, and if you look at the end of verse 22, we see a very familiar image. If you've ever been to a wedding, it says, and, and God, so God created a woman and brought her to the man. This is the image of a father walking a bride down the aisle. And we see a man and a woman coming together with, with sex being the conclusion happening after making a covenant commitment to one another where sex leads to flourishing. Because there's a certain order and there's a certain covenant and there's a certain commitment, it doesn't at least to order, not to confusion, at least to life, not to heartache. And what we see from Adam and Eve is that sex requires the covenant commitment that God makes, has us make before him between a man and a woman in marriage. That is meant to be in the context of a lifelong, exclusive, and completely devoted relationship where it says that you get all of a person. You get mind, body, you get them spiritually, you have devotion. And what this creates is a context where you're not looking for something new. You're not looking for something different or wondering if someone's looking for better. You're truly, truly leaving and clinging to one another and so Alan Ross says that God intended that the man and the woman be a spiritual functioning unity, walking in integrity, serving God together, and keeping his commandments. When this harmony is operative, society flourishes under God's blessing. Improper innovations only introduce chaos and ruin into society. And this is why sex outside of this paradigm, any type, doesn't lead to life. It's a half commitment. It says, I like what I get from you. I like how you make me feel. This is every love song you've ever heard, right? I, 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 we have tonight, and we've got to love each other tonight. But not enough to completely commit. Not enough to shut off my options. Not enough to say, we're in this for the long haul. We're in this together. And ultimately, that's a failure to love. It's a, it's a failure to be self-giving rather than self-seeking. And so what happens is sex without this type of commitment ultimately leads to shame. You notice in verse 25, it says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Marriage between a man and a woman creates a flourishing opportunity for good, for protection where there is no shame. And we see this marriage covenant and this commitment was actually given in such a way to protect people particularly to protect women in a world where they could be used and abused and abandoned. We're going to see how man, people failed at that throughout the book of Genesis. But there's also so much data that talks about the, the couples who, who get married and have a monogamous relationship actually flourish more than any other couples. But here's how this is enlightening to you, whether you're married or not, whatever relationship that you might be in, is that Sex and commitment are a gift. They're not life itself. Sam Alberry says, the issue is not whether this path or that path is better, or whether singleness or marriage would bring me more good. The issue is God and whether I will plunge myself into him, trusting him every day. All of our relationships, whether it's friendship, your work, romantic, whatever it may be, is an opportunity for us to look to the Lord together. And because it's not ultimate, it, it points beyond itself, which means whether you're single, whether you're divorced, whether you're, you're same-sex attracted or opposite-sex attracted, whether you're, you're married but you're struggling, and marriage is not the fix-all for all things. Whatever it is, it points to a deeper love and a union for us. And all of this, all relationships are possible because of Adam and Eve and what they point to. Adam and Eve give us a picture of the gospel. They give us a picture of 
of the gospel. And the reason that marriage matters, the reason that singleness matters, the reason that friendships and parenting and neighboring all matter is they point to a greater reality. They point to the greatest relationship that you and I could possibly enter into. And they're a picture of God's plan to redeem us. What's the image that God uses in the New Testament of his relationship to the church? He calls the church his bride. Christ loving and pursuing and redeeming his bride. Men and women called together as a people, the church, to experience God's love and forgiveness. And we see this pattern that who has loved us better than Jesus? Who has given himself for us more than Jesus? Who has been more loyal and faithful and committed to us than Jesus? Yet we sin and we betray our Savior, who perfectly loved us. But here's what also happens when when we receive Jesus. When you trust Jesus, and I mean we as the church trust Jesus, we become one with him. Something I talk about in premarital counseling all the time when I do premarital counseling with a couple is we talk about finances because finances are a big issue. And the reason we talk about this is that what you you bring into a marriage, the other person now shares. So if you bring trauma into a marriage, the other person has to bear that. It should be worked out. If you bring debt into a marriage, the other person now is on the hook for that debt. You have to acknowledge it and you have to deal with it. What does Jesus do when he becomes one with us? He takes all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our fear, and he takes it upon himself. But we also get something too, right? Well, when Jesus takes that and we're united with him, we get his righteousness. We get his perfect standing before the Father. We get a relationship with God. We get all of his joy and all of his blessings. And what that means for us is no matter what you come in with, no matter your history, no matter the mistakes you've made, no matter what you struggle with, there is grace for you. If, you're, if your marriage fell apart, if, if you're not living up to the standards we see that God gives us in his word, there is freedom by confessing and trusting Jesus. And what this means is that we can stand before God naked and vulnerable with no shame. He sees everything, and because he sees everything, we are received. All relationships are meant to point to Jesus because all relationships are temporal. If you're married now, you won't be married to that person in heaven. Jesus talks a lot about that. There won't even be parent and child in heaven. And this also gives us hope because if you lost a loved one who knows Jesus, you'll one day see them again. But the hope we have is that one day we will have a relationship that will never fade. That you'll be with a whole family of people united to Christ as the church, brothers and sisters who are looking to the Jesus who perfectly loved us. So as we wrap up this morning, few questions to think about. Relationally, are you admitting your need for other people? Are you leaning in relationally? Secondly, are you looking for in others what only Jesus can give? What happens is that when you're rightly ordered and you look to Jesus to be the one who satisfies you, it seems to take the pressure off all of your relationships. And then lastly, have you trusted Jesus with your whole life? Have you trusted him to be the one that you give your life and your love and your commitments to? Let's pray.